0: I want to invite you to take the Bible that you brought with you and open it up to 1 John chapter 4 or take the Bible that's there in the pew that's available for you and open up to John's first letter, 1 John chapter 4, that's page 856, 856, 1 John chapter 4. A little personal confession, uh, as a pastor, I practice and, and read a lot of and engage in what's known as theology. And I, I confess to you, and with some regret, that in my experience, theology is a word that, when it gets put out there, either intimidates or turns off a lot of people. It's theology. Some people associate it with thick, dense books, with big, fancy words strung together, and therefore, theology is reserved for the scholarly or the intellectual elite while I kind of like the sound of that, Um, it it is a lonely group. (laughs) Others hear theology and they view it with caution or suspicion, viewing theology, if you will, as generating more heat than light and being responsible for some of the big arguments and even the bigger divisions that we have within the church, within the body of Christ. And then there are those who balk that theology turns faith in Christ into something that preoccupies the mind, but clogs the heart and stifles the flow of the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, there are those, and I won't ask for a show of hands, who upon the mention of the word theology perceive something that is dry, dusty, and boring, provoking more of a yawn and the desire to fall asleep. I'm an avid reader and uh, I actually talk whenever I see my family because they read too about what books they're reading. And I learned a long time ago, just to not mention the books that I'm reading that are about theology, because I always get the same look. Why would you want to read that? Theology has a real, you know, again, it either intimidates or turns us off. And despite its misperception, and frankly, sadly, its abuse, what you're gonna find today as we return to the Apostle John's first letter to the church, He's going to assure us today that regardless of how we feel about it, theology matters. And so today, we're going to engage our minds as well as our hearts. And for those of you who maybe that's not your normal practice, I want to just warn you right now and in advance, buckle up, okay? Buckle up, because your brain might explode by the time we're done today. But I promise to be gentle. I promise to guide us through. And I promise that if your brain does explode, I hope it doesn't literally explode. That would be gross. But if it explodes inside, God can put it back together again. So don't worry. Because what we're going to look at, as John's going to talk about, is, again, theology. And a great way to define theology is what we believe about God. And John wants us to know that what we believe about God, and particularly in our case about Jesus, about the Holy Spirit, it affects not only how we understand forgiveness and salvation, but it also affects how we live a life of grace and love. So if you have those Bibles open, join me in reading from John's fourth chapter, starting in verse 1. John writes, Dear friends, Right out of the gate. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world right from the outset here in the fourth part of John's letter, his first letter. He warns us not to believe everything we hear. Not to believe everything we hear when it comes to matters of faith and spirituality. John begins by encouraging each one of us to test everything, as he writes it, to test the spirits, and that means to test the wisdom of the day, the latest and often trendy beliefs, these things that we are exposed to, and, to, and not only to test it, but to test how we are, those beliefs influence and inspire inspire us. That word inspire, if you've never taken it apart or thought about it, that word inspire taps into John's idea of testing the spirits because inspire means that which animates us, that which breathes life or fills us with purpose. And so John is saying we need to test the things that we are exposed to and the choices that we make. Now, I don't know if you were listening carefully, and I hope your Bibles are still open, but John is pretty direct and pretty harsh here. I mean, even towards the end when he basically says, we are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. Wow. It's pretty, pretty bold, right? It's, pretty, it's kind of putting it out there. I, 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 don't want to make, I don't want to make, just kind of assume, for some of us, you might hear John here And you might think, gosh, John is, it might rub you the wrong way. John is sounding judgmental, or our word today for it is intolerant, doesn't he? If you listen to us, you're from God. If you don't listen to us, you're not from God. Sounds judgmental. I mean, sounds kind of pushes some of our buttons because we live in a time where more and more in our conversations, in our social settings, the message that we're hearing is that the last thing we want to do is discriminate, right? Discriminate is, we don't want to do that. And we, we say things, right? You know, in the midst of, 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 of differences, we say, well, you know what, to each his own. To each his own, we like to say, hey, well, hey, if that works for you, you know what? Who am I to say otherwise? And yet John is saying something totally different. John's saying, look, if you, if you listen to us, then you're from God. If you don't, then you're not. John says we have to test. We have to discriminate. Now, I don't want to go too far in this because there is some, some, some weight behind the conversation we're having these days. On the one hand, we shouldn't discriminate. We shouldn't discriminate against others based on their race, based upon their ethnicity, based upon their social class, based upon their gender. And that's part of the conversation we're having. That kind of discrimination is wrong. But on the other side, I don't want to go too far the other way, and that's kind of where I think sometimes our conversation in culture is going. Discrimination, however, is not a bad word across the board. Discrimination is not a bad word, and that if you don't, we don't stop and think about that, you're going to have a hard time listening to what John has to say because he's going to turn us off. Discrimination is not okay. It's not right in many situations, but discrimination itself is not a bad word. In fact, whether we realize it or acknowledge it, we, you and I, we actually discriminate on a regular basis. I mean, because discrimination is simply using judgment to pick between choices. And you and I, I I can't imagine any person who's exclusive to this who doesn't fall into this category, we all distinguish and we favor between options all the time. My son uh, just went to prom and we went to get his tux at Men's Warehouse and I had not been to Men's Warehouse in years. And Men's Warehouse has some really nice shirts. Really nice shirts and you know Pastor Chris. Pastor Chris likes his shirts and Pastor Chris could have used a new shirt. And I saw some ones I thought, that's going to look good on Sunday. And so I went over to the rack and said, oh, I like this one. And then I looked at the tag and it was $95. Pastor Chris doesn't need a shirt that bad. (laughs) And as I went through the rack going, man, this is a really good looking shirt. It's not a $95 shirt. Man, this is a good looking shirt. All of a sudden I found a shirt that was marked at $25. This shirt. (laughs) And I said, sold. I discriminated, Right? I walked into Men's Warehouse and I saw some really great shirts, but I discriminated, I exercised discrimination in choosing between a shirt that cost $95 and a shirt that looks like it cost $95, (laughs) but it really cost $25. Just kidding, just kidding. We discriminate all the time. When multiple opportunities are presented to me about how I can spend my free time when I have it, I make a choice about which invitation I will accept or decline, right? In raising our kids, Beth and I together repeatedly evaluate and decide Where, doing what, and with whom our kids can go. (laughs) We pass judgment individually and as a society all the time. In fact, to keep pushing on this, we even discriminate, though we don't against some and we shouldn't, we actually still discriminate against certain types of behaviors, don't we? I mean, we don't allow convicted alcoholics to drive a car. We don't allow people to smoke on airplanes anymore. In order to prevent harm to others, a traffic accident, or the effects of secondhand smoke, we discriminate against certain types of behaviors. We live in a country where one of the the most precious things that we celebrate is the right to free speech. We have the right to free speech, but while everyone has the right to free speech, you may or may not know this, several decades ago, the Supreme Court, the highest court in the land, decided that even though we have free speech, there are limits to free speech. A person can't just yell fire in a crowded theater for kicks as a practical joke. If you and I get into a conversation, you begin to share with me about some of the choices that you've made, and and I start to disagree with some of those choices, right? Or I, I take issue with them. Maybe in the midst of that conversation, I might actually accuse you in your choices of being too discriminating, right? You're being too discriminating. In that conversation, you could turn to me and say, well, that's a pretty judgmental thing to say. I suppose you're making a judgment about me, aren't you? And you know what? You'd be right. We're all judgmental. We all seek to discriminate between what we perceive as good and evil. We each purpose, we think about making decisions, choices that are rooted in truth and are avoiding error. And this is what John is appealing to, this idea of, okay, this is, you do this anyway. This is what you do apply this to when you think about your faith and about spirituality and the ironic thing is even though i hope i've convinced you that we we this is part of our dna as human beings the ironic thing in my experience as a pastor and as just a pilgrim of the faith is i encounter more and more christians that frankly don't think very deeply about what they believe they don't think about what they believe life's so busy you know they got so much going on their minds preoccupied with so much other stuff that they sit and they're content with a few platitudes, a few motivational verses they picked up along the way from the Bible, and that's what gets them through the week, and that's about it. And and as I talk to to those people and and kind of probe, well, what do you believe and why do you believe it? The response I get back more and more, and it's troubling to me, is, well, you know, I don't really think a lot about that. Just as long as I get that emotional connection, you know? Just as long as I get that emotional connection, as long as I sense the Father Jesus and the Holy Spirit, as long as I sense that, then I'm not too worried about the particulars of what I believe about God. And I'm not taking away from the the significance of that kind of experience, but when that's it, think about it. When that's it, faith for us becomes a matter of feeling. And as long as we're feeling the love, as long as we're feeling the grace, as long as we're feeling the hope, we're good, right? But if we're not feeling it, we're not good. And as long as we're feeling it, we say to ourselves, well, it doesn't matter where it comes from. It doesn't matter what drives it. And this is where we run smack into John this morning because John says, not so. John says you have to test the spirits. As Christians, my friends, we follow Jesus as a matter of faith and feeling is involved. But in following Jesus as a matter of faith, our faith is not blind. It is not a faith simply driven by how we feel because if your faith is simply driven by how you feel, your faith will go like this all the time because our feelings go like this all the time and you might notice a strange coincidence that your participation in your intimacy with God depends upon how you feel. Our faith involves our feelings, but our faith is not simply driven by how we feel. It's a faith informed by what we believe, how we perceive, how we understand, how we are shaped by what God has revealed to us in the Bible through Christ and continually by the Holy Spirit. Again, to continue to unpack this for us, Christianity the kingdom of God, and the Christianity is about the kingdom, the reign of God. Christianity, I don't know if you've ever thought of it this way, Christianity is exclusively inclusive. You ever think about that? Christianity, the kingdom of God, is exclusively inclusive. Let me break that apart for you. It's inclusive. All are included. All are welcome. All are children of God created in his image. All All have been forgiven, redeemed, and reconciled to God through Jesus. All can be saved and need not fear death, but instead joyously anticipate eternal life. All are invited and encouraged to embrace these promises, this identity, this destiny, these gifts of grace. All. Everyone. But the way, the truth, and the life is exclusively through Jesus, through the cross, through the resurrection, and the Holy Spirit. All beliefs are not the same. All roads do not lead to heaven. Different faiths may share common values, and many of them do, common values. But the rationale, the worldview, the conception of life, death and salvation between those faiths is decidedly different, and oftentimes completely irreconcilable. You cannot put them together. And that's why John is encouraging us to be unbelievers as much as we are believers. To be unbelievers as much as we are believers, meaning to be skeptical in terms of what we believe. To discriminate regarding what is from God and to reject what is not. Now, I, I recognize that I keep using that word discriminating, and again, given sort of our cultural conversation, that still might be a hang-up for us, which I get, even though I've tried to kind of separate this understanding of it. If discriminating is a word is hanging you up, then let me give you a different word to insert in its place. Discerning. Discerning. Discernment. As individual followers of Jesus and as the body of Christ, John is telling us that together, We are to be a community of discernment, recognizing we cannot believe what is true unless we reject what is false. Did did you guys all hear that? You cannot believe what is true unless you reject what is false. I'll make it even more simple, and we experience this every day in our lives. You cannot say yes to something unless you say no. Yes automatically requires you to say no to something and a variety of other things. And that's what John is sort of bringing out. You can't just go, well, everything's true. No, no, something is only true if you can reject what is false. And John warns us this is important because not just in his day and still in ours, he says there's a lot of false teachers out there. John says a lot of false prophets, a lot of false teachers out there. And when John says false, real important, we also kind of catch this nuance. When John says there's a lot of false teachers out there, he doesn't mean false in the sense of people who are doing a complete 180 who are openly denying or rejecting Christ. I mean, think about it. If if people out there, teachers, prophets, were doing 100% contrast, that would easily stand out, right? We would go, okay, that is clearly not true. No, and John has hinted at this before. What he's he's helping us to realize is John is referring to counterfeit thinking, counterfeit teaching, beliefs that profess part of the truth about Jesus but not the whole truth. Just true enough to sound legit, and yet just distorted enough to change the nature of the gospel itself. Now, we experience this in our daily lives apart from theology. You know, many of us have things that we, uh, we, we value, that things that we, we, we put our, our value behind. You know, I'm talking like products, things like that. And we, when we go out and we look for uh, certain products, Many times, imitations of brand names or valuable items, the generic, you know what I'm talking about, are easy to spot, right? This isn't Starbucks coffee. But you also know that the best knockoffs, the most deceptive counterfeits, are the closest to the real thing, right? They're not so easy to recognize. You have to really know your stuff to make sure you have the genuine article, as we say. And this is the same principle John is appealing to here. In fact, the word he uses for testing, when he tells us to test everything, the word he uses for testing refers to the testing of metals, of evaluating the source and the quality of coins and weapons to ensure that the metal used to forge them was unalloyed and pure. John is saying we have to discern between what is true and what is counterfeit. And John, as I've t- emphasized it many times, pushes this idea of testing by emphasizing a difference between the Spirit of God and the other spirits, the spirits that he goes on to describe as being from this world, right? And, and that, that's, that can be a little confusing for us. What's the distinction between the Spirit of God and the spirits of this world? To sort this out, first we need to remember something that John has to- kind of said to us earlier is that when John talks about the world, and he uses that a lot in these verses right here, when John talks about the world in this way, he's not referring to or implying in a blanket sense the world as God created it, as if the world as God created it is evil or bad. No, when John talks about the world, he's delineating a particular mindset where God is subjected, if you will, or confined to the limits of our reason and understanding putting God in our box right in other words what John is referring to is when he talks about testing the spirits is the spirit of the world that's a spirit of self-sufficiency I don't need God it's the spirit of rebellion well I you know what God needs to answer to me it's an orientation or posture that makes us anything less anything less than being totally dependent and reliant upon God did you hear that totally dependent and reliant upon God. So it even can creep up when we, when we say stuff like well, you and God are working together. You're partnering with God. As if, you know what I mean, you're kind of well, yeah, I depend on God, I'm relying upon God, but God kind of needs me too. I, you know, I, I'm moving up on the, on the relationship. No. That's the spirit of the world. That's where we begin to start to fashion God in our own image rather than recognize we are created in the image of God and reflect God to each other. To tease this distinction out a bit further, um, let's again acknowledge something that's just a universal truth or a universal fact. Every person has beliefs, all of you. We all have beliefs, right? We all have convictions, as I mentioned earlier, about what is real and true. And if you agree with that statement, and I don't know how you could disagree with it, if you are, you're actually having thoughts right now, so you're, you're actually buying into it. If you follow me, every person on this planet, then, is a theologian. So if you don't like theology, that's okay, but you're still a theologian, because every person on this planet has beliefs about themselves, beliefs about the world we live in, and beliefs about whether or not there is a God, and if so, what kind of God there is. We all, at some point, have answers to that, create an answer. Even atheists are theologians. They believe something about God, right? They believe God does not exist, and they have reasons for why they believe this. Get where I'm going with this? Every person has beliefs. It's impossible to go through life without forming some theory as to the questions of life, meaning, and death. And our answers, individually and collectively, our answers, our collective ideas, are the spirits of this world. Right? It's, the, it's what fills the, the spirits of this world. It's what's out there. And this, this, can, this is a lot easier to talk to you guys about today than it would have been a couple of decades ago because we live in a time when spirituality is kind of a buzzword in our day and age. There was a time when spirituality wasn't a, a big word, but these days I find spirituality is a, a, a big word. People like that word spirituality. I find everybody wants to be spiritual. Everybody claims to be spiritual. That's not gonna shut down a conversation. It'll start one up. Everyone has a belief, a theory about the big questions. But notice something important about our interest in spirituality and the conversations we have about it. And you'll understand what John is trying to make a distinction of. In our modern day conversation and fascination with spirituality, notice that there is no objective nature to these beliefs. It's an individualized spirituality, right? It's an individualized spirituality that's tailored to the specific needs, the specific interests, and specific experiences of the particular person. And as a result, when you get into conversations or when you try to apply your spirituality to the world at large, you can't do it because this kind of spirituality has no definitive universal content. Or as you've often heard, there is no absolute truth. It's all subjective. It's all relative to me. The answers are my answers. The only authority behind these beliefs that I have is the authority I give to these convictions. Think about the implications of that. So if I change my mind, what is true changes. And these are the kind of spirits that John is talking about. The world is filled with this kind of spirit. Spirits, individual and collective beliefs that are conceived and decided by humanity. If you read John carefully, if John were here right now, the question for John is not the question that we often ask. The question for John is not, are you spiritual? That's not John's question. We like to go, are you spiritual? John isn't asking that question, because here's the thing that John wants us to understand, everyone's spiritual, everyone's spiritual. Even demons, even Satan is spiritual. For John, the question is, what spirit are you following? What spirit are you following? And the difference for John between the spirits of this world, the spirits of this world being our spirituality that's relative to what we envision, relative to what we accept, the contrast to that subjective spirituality is for John, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, is different because it's not subjective. The Holy Spirit is anchored in the objective revelation of God come down in the flesh in Jesus Christ. I'm probably losing you right now. but th- So maybe this will help you. The spirits of this world, everything about when we we define the terms and the parameters, it's us looking up to find God. That's the spirits of this world. And what John is saying is, yep, all of that is subjective. It's all individualistic. It can all change based upon your preference, how you feel, what you think in the moment. But if you're looking for absolute truth, objective reality, there is objective reality and absolute truth. And it is not us looking up to find God, but God come down to us in Jesus Christ. We didn't climb up and get Jesus, Jesus came down to us. And God coming down to us in Christ reveals to us, reveals, we don't put it on Jesus, Jesus reveals, reveals to us who God is, who we are, and how we are to live. In other words, we don't follow our own beliefs, our own ideas about Jesus. We often talk that way. We actually sometimes even try to put Jesus in our box. But if we're really following Christ, we don't follow our own ideas or beliefs about Jesus. We follow Jesus as a person, as definitive and authoritative, our definitive and authoritative source of truth. That's why we profess, think about this, Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We don't say, Jesus, you're my Lord as long as I agree with everything you say. Jesus, you're my savior if you fit in my definition of saving. No, I submit, I surrender my life to you. I call you Lord and Savior. You are the definitive truth. You are the authoritative source in my life. When everything else in this world is saying competing things and I don't know which way to look, I look at you and I look at what you say, I look at what you do, I look at how you lived and that is truth. That is the way, that is the life. And John says this is it. If, and that's why, he, if, notice what he writes here. And it's, it's quite startling. He says, if what we believe is not guided by the person of Jesus, if we aren't practicing discernment as led by the Spirit of Christ, catch what John says here, then we are leaving ourselves open to the influence, to being formed by that which is false. By that which is, as John is implying here, demonic. That which is ultimately harmful Not only to us, but to each other. We are leaving ourselves open to following what John calls, and he's the only person, by the way, who uses this word in the Bible, the Antichrist. And the Antichrist, despite our end times theology, isn't, you know, whatever world leader you want to create. The Antichrist is the spirit that is opposite to Jesus. It is the polar opposite of the truth, love, and grace of God offered through Jesus Christ. Why I say this is startling is more and more we live in a world, and we even say this within the church, where we want to believe that there's always a middle option. And one of the things you notice throughout the scriptures, again and again, Old Testament to New, across the board, is where we we're always looking for the middle option. God either says, You're either right or you're wrong. It's either true or it's false. It's either life or it's death. And we go, Well, I want the middle way. There ain't no middle way. This or this. And when we try to create that middle way, maybe that's another way to say it, every attempt to create a middle way is the spirit of this world. The spirit of God says, you can go this way or you can go that way. That's it. Up to now, it hasn't been appropriate to share this, but as we've been reading this first letter of John, part of maybe you might have picked up is this, this whole understanding of belief, what you think is what is driving John to write this letter. And if you haven't caught that before, in the verses we just read, it really starts to become clear, okay? Because I don't know if you caught it, when he starts to say, those who acknowledge Jesus came in the flesh are from God, but those who will not acknowledge Jesus came in the flesh are not from God. He's referring to a specific group of people. He's discriminating, right, between people who believe this and people who believe that. And he's giving us in this moment in the letter some insight into the specific controversy that causes him to write. And I'll give you the background on this. John is writing several decades after the the events of the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that's hard for us to comprehend is that when those things were happening in real time, when Jesus was living, when Jesus died, when he rose again, and when he ascended into heaven, one of the things that's hard for us to understand is that the people who were following Jesus were not fully understanding what was happening in real time. Do you understand what I'm saying? It wasn't like they all of a sudden were like, oh, we totally get this. Oh, we understand who Jesus is. We understand how oh, this all makes it. You see this in the Gospels, and the Gospels were written later where they're confessing. We just did not, we were, did not get it in the moment. John, last week, our John, preached upon the, the celebration of Pentecost. That was a decisive moment where Peter, who up till then continually put his foot in his mouth, right? John, Peter was always the guy who was like, oh, I get it, I know. No, you don't. Oh, I get it, I know. No, you don't. Peter gets filled with the Holy Spirit and preaches one of the greatest sermons ever. My point is, those who were following Jesus in real time, it was only in looking back, the church in looking back, began to understand what just happened. Who was that? How does that change things? They only began to understand what they believed by reflecting upon the experience. That's the whole point of the New Testament. The letters we have, the Gospels, are written down as the church has stopped having conversations but now starts to record, this is what we believe. This is what this means. This is how it affects how we think about God, how we think about ourselves, and how we we think and live with each other. Okay, so John is writing in this context of looking back. In the aftermath of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, the church is looking back and is gradually coming to understand who Jesus was and how that shapes the gospel that we believe in and how we live. And one of the revelations that the church saw, looking back, was that Jesus, on the one hand, was fully divine. He was the Son of God, right? But they also see that Jesus was also fully human. He was the Son of Man. You with me? Okay, if you're with me, then you should be confused right now, as the church was. Because Jesus was fully God, and fully man. I'm not a math guy, but 100% God and 100% man, doesn't make sense. Right? The math doesn't add up. And yet the church said we cannot get away from what we clearly see in the scriptures, from what we remember, what we're writing down. Well, you were there, right? This is what you, you heard this, right? You saw this. The witness to the scriptures is Jesus is fully God and fully human. Even though that's blowing our minds, and even though the math doesn't add up, That is what was revealed to us. And the church began to wrestle with, what does that mean? How does that affect now how we understand what God has done in Jesus Christ and how that affects us as the body of Christ? But here's here's the challenge. When John is writing, what's happening is some teachers are coming around that are changing things just a little bit. And you have to remember, again, the context, too. They didn't gather in a big church like this. They gathered in small house churches. These letters that we read, that was their primary teaching that they would gather around. So you'd have someone like a Paul or a John come into Ephesus or Corinth and then, you know, make the circuit and teach. And they weren't the only ones. There were other people who would come in and go, hey, I believe in Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm here to talk to you about the gospel. Except some were starting to come in and to teach something just a little different. Right? Right? Some traveling teachers were coming in and they began to teach that God had not come in the flesh in Jesus Christ. They argued Jesus was fully divine, fully God, but not fully human. He was all God, but only appeared to be human. Notice, by the way, remember what I told you earlier, what's happening here. Some began to elevate their rationale, their logic about Jesus over the revelation of Christ, right? The math doesn't add up. This is really hard to understand. So he just appeared to be human. Oh, that's a lot easier. Oh, okay, I can, okay. He was Terminator Jesus, right? You know what I mean by that, right? You know the Terminator movies? If you remember, he shows up, looks human, but is anything like a human being, you know, like moving around? That's why I like old Jesus movies. You ever like watch old Jesus movies? This shows you that this is still an issue. You know, there's everybody else is acting like human beings, and then Jesus walks in the room, and he's got like the white eyes and walks in like this. And, everyone, you know, and, and if someone speaks, he goes. It's struggling with this idea of the humanity of Christ. And so some teachers are going, okay, you don't have to struggle. He was all God, but just appeared to be human. All the other, now notice, again, back to counterfeit. All the other elements of the gospel are there, the truth, right? It's just this seemingly minor change to make the math add up, to make Jesus more user-friendly, less controversial, And I'm gathering as I look at some of the glazed looks on some of your faces that you're hearing about this and going, this sounds like a whole lot of nothing. Sounds like a whole—who cares, right? It sounds like a whole lot of nothing because for us, and I think this is telling, most of us, if I were to ask you what's the most important thing that we believe, I hope that at a bare minimum you would say, well, you need to know Jesus died for our sins, you need to know that Jesus was raised from the dead, and you need to know Jesus was coming—is Jesus coming back. And you'd obviously accept, believe those things. For us, we're like, who cares? Oh, so Jesus is fully God, fully human. If he died for our sins and if he was raised from the dead and he's coming back, there you go, done. But by the way, notice for John, this is no small matter. John is jumping up and down and saying, this is a big deal, this is a big deal. And just to take you beyond John, for the next three centuries, as the church grows beyond the apostle John, this continues to be a controversy, a conversation, a point of theology that everyone is continuing to talk about we got to figure this out. It's deemed so important by the church, us, so crucial as a matter of belief that councils of believers gather together to sort it out, and eventually they wrote a creed, a statement of belief to record for the generations to come, us, so that we would know definitively what does the church believe on this. You know this creed. We haven't said it in a while. I have a big miss, that I don't have a say in it this morning. It's the Nicene Creed. You know, and I think it's telling that our modern ignorance or forgetfulness about this issue brings relevance to John's word for us today. My friends, do we know what we believe? We may not say the Nicene Creed today or the Apostles' Creed, but we've said them before. You've maybe grown up in church all your life. Do you ever stop and think about what you're saying? Do you know why you're saying it? Do you even think about what it means? Again, It's important that Jesus died for our sins. It's important that Jesus was raised from the dead. It's important that he's coming back. But the creeds, the statements of belief that the church left for us, are more than just those three sentences. And for those who came before us, they said these things are essential. This is what it means to be the church. Do we understand what we believe as the church? Do we know why it matters that Jesus was fully divine and fully human? I'm going to try to help you to see really why you should pay attention, why you should think about this belief, why it matters. Now, the first thing I want you to understand is when John says, you know what, we need to say out loud that Jesus came in the flesh, he's not talking about, again, just saying a creed. He's not saying, all that matters is as long as you verbally say, I believe that Jesus came in the flesh. I don't know what the heck it means, I don't know why it matters, but I'll say it in church. That's not what John is writing. John is saying you need to understand this statement, why it matters. Because here's the thing. Look in the Gospels for proof. Even the demons confess that Jesus came in the flesh as the Son of God. Remember that? Even the demons say that. But do you understand why it matters and how it shapes our life as the church? Okay, some things to think about. If Jesus wasn't fully human, what's the big deal? If Jesus wasn't fully human, then think about this. Then Jesus didn't really understand fully what it's like to be human. Isn't that one of the most core things we believe? That Jesus understands what it's like to be human. If Jesus isn't fully human, then he doesn't fully understand what it's like to be human. That means if Jesus isn't fully human, then Jesus didn't really understand our struggles with temptation and doubt. If Jesus isn't fully human, then Jesus didn't really understand our fears when facing death or pain. If Jesus isn't fully human, then Jesus didn't really understand our feelings of isolation and abandonment when the crowd turns on us, when those close to us betray us, when God seems distant and silent. And if Jesus wasn't fully human, then he couldn't fully represent us, could he? Isn't that a big part of what we believe, that Jesus represents us, his perfect life in the midst of our imperfect life? If Jesus isn't fully human, he can't fully represent us because the challenges, the struggles, the temptations he faced, they weren't real if he wasn't fully human, right? His perfect obedience in our place if he wasn't fully human would be meaningless. It's a fraud. He doesn't actually experience it because He's not. he just appears to be human, so it's a wink, wink, nod, nod to God, Right? In his suffering and his death, ow, this really hurts, oh my God, my God, why have you betrayed me, why have you forsaken me? I'm serious. He's not really going through it. He just appears to be human. But he's God, and he's like, oh, this tickles. Oh, no. Recognizing a fully human and divine Jesus forces us to take seriously our call to follow Christ. Because we have this tendency, right, if we just think of God as, a, as spiritual. There's just a, God's just up there. He's not, He didn't actually come down here. We have this tendency, if that's all we believe about God, to treat God like a vending machine, right? We expect God from up there to just magically fix everything and set everything the way we want it to be. But if you understand God as flesh and blood in Jesus Christ— the humanity of Jesus, then you have to remember what we see in the full humanity of Jesus. His words and his witness of what? Dying to self. And his words and his witness of seeking not our will, but the will of our Father. Totally changes your theology. A fully human Jesus is not a God who's like, okay, I'm just dropping presents on you, woo. It's a God who says, "Uh, everything I have is yours, but you gotta die to yourself And follow my will. And Jesus doesn't just act it. He actually embodies it. And I'm going to keep going. This belief about Jesus being fully human as well as fully divine, it doesn't just have implications about how we understand Jesus in relationship to us. I really want to hit this part too. It also significantly affects how we reflect Jesus to each other. Right? If Jesus isn't fully human, you with me? Am I losing you? You guys, you still here? Just give me a thumbs up, nod, something. Am I all right, a couple of you? All right. If Jesus isn't fully human, if we perceive Jesus as just God in the shell of a human being, his body only mattering as a vehicle to accomplish the spiritual work of opening a way past death for us, then the person of Jesus, the earthly life of Jesus, doesn't really matter, right? Doesn't really matter. And therefore, the here and now doesn't really matter all that much. And this is where you find this in the church, right? A spirituality where everything we're focused on is on our next life. Our hope is on our next life, and we pay no attention and don't engage the life that's right in front of us. If we don't believe in a fully human, down to earth Jesus, then our focus as the body of Christ will be concerned only with the spiritual needs of other people, even as we ignore or minimize the physical needs of those immediately around us. Do you understand? That's the kind of thing where we throw out trite expressions. You've got cancer. Oh, don't worry. You're going to a better place. Oh, I'm sorry. You're poor. I'm sorry. You don't have any money right now. You lost your house. But God has a purpose. God's got a, got a wonderful plan for your life. And that just it sounds bankrupt, doesn't it? I mean, if you've ever actually said that to someone, they don't go, oh, thank you. That's so comforting. Gosh. They're, they're horrified because that's a spirituality divorced from God who gets down and dirty, gets physical in the reality of our lives. When Christ becomes nothing more than a symbol, a figurehead, a means to an end, our stairway to heaven as we wait and watch the world burn, then we have no perceived need to have a transformative impact upon our communities. The world's all going to burn anyway. It's all going to hell anyway. If Jesus, didn't, if Jesus wasn't fully human and didn't really care about this world, if it was just a means to an end, then why should we? Why should we work for the kingdom of God? And that's where we create spiritualities that the kingdom of God is in the next life. Has nothing to do with this life. But on the other hand, if we recognize Jesus as both fully God and fully human, it challenges us to wrestle with the reality that Jesus as God in the flesh spent much of his time living a life of tangible love with the lowest and most outcast members of society. If we take the humanity of Jesus seriously and then recognize he's also fully God, you pay attention to how and where Jesus spent his time. And he spent his time living a life of tangible love and sacrifice amongst the lowest, the most outcast members of society. And as a result, was rejected by most, not all, but most of the powers that be in the world at that time. And what does that mean? How does that change how we think and how we live? Because if you pay attention to that Jesus then all of a sudden it totally redefines our understanding of the nature of love as well as our perception of power. And that is why John next week is gonna go right back to the topic of love because Jesus in the flesh is how you understand God is love and what that means. Oh, time, time, time. I could talk to you about the Trinity. If I do, I will go way long and I'm already pretty close to that. But today is Trinity Sunday, I don't know if you knew that. Last week was Pentecost Sunday, today was Trinity Sunday. I'll simply leave you with this, maybe this is a homework assignment. You know, you probably have heard that we believe in the Trinity here in the church. And you probably have had all kinds of different metaphors to help you to understand the Trinity. And again, talk about the math. God is one in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let me encourage you, rather than trying to use your brain power to understand how it works, maybe today, not just by yourself, talking with someone else, to think about, as I've just done for you, I've taken you through the exercise of thinking about why it matters, that Jesus is fully human and fully divine, to think about why it matters, why the church said this is essential to understand that God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I'll give you a little place to start. If you struggle with the, if you're gonna get caught up in the mechanics, I don't want you to worry about how it works. I want you to simply deal with what it represents, what it tells us. The Trinity, even if you don't understand how it works, and I don't, is telling us, God is revealing us through the Trinity this, that God is a relational God. That God exists in a self-contained relationship of perfection, a self-contained relationship of mutuality, of balance and of love. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, mutuality, balance, and love. The very thing that we all crave in our relationships, God has perfectly. And now just, I'll leave you with this. Consider that if that's what the Trinity means, that God exists in a self-contained, perfect relationship of mutuality, love, and balance, (coughs) why would God invite us into that? You ever had something perfect? You ever had a moment where it's just been you and another person and you guys are so connected, you're so together, it's like a moment you want to freeze in time and then someone else walks in the room and you get really ticked off? If that's God, why break up a good thing? Or why mess up something perfect? Think about that. My friends, (laughs) too many people, Christians I mean, are not thinking enough. And John, in the, in the briefest of ways, has told us how we think what we believe about God matters. And if you're sitting here today still, despite my best efforts to give you what John is saying, if you're still sitting there saying, I don't need theology, Pastor Chris, I just believe in Jesus and the Bible. John is challenging you, not me. John is challenging you to answer exactly what you believe about Jesus, as well as to consider how what you believe matters and how it shapes not only your understanding of God, but your relationship to others. Because there's a lot of counterfeit spirituality out there, my friends. There is a lot of frauds and knockoffs when it comes to what people teach about Jesus and what it means to follow him. And bad and wrong theology, as John has warned us, and as we have experienced maybe in our lives or seen in our lives, bad and wrong theology leads to false ideas and practices that can have ultimately eternal consequences, not only for us, but for those around us as well. And if we don't know what we believe, if we don't know what is essential, what makes the gospel the gospel, how will you recognize false teaching? Beliefs about God, beliefs about Jesus, beliefs about the Holy Spirit that can and are causing others harm. Beliefs that can and are today distorting and damaging the witness of the church. So I invite you to think about what you believe. No, strike that. Don't think about what you believe. Don't start there. Think about what we believe. What we believe as the church. And if you don't know where to start, open up a creed, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. There's tons of creeds. And just read it and say, why does this matter? What does this mean? What difference does this make? And you might be surprised where the Spirit will take your thoughts. Talk about it. And one last attempt, because I... (laughs) I just know from experience that some of you are sitting there and you're saying, yeah, I know, but I'm much more of a heart person. I'm not a mind person. I'm not really smart. I don't, I don't think, I'm not like you. Not that I'm not all that smart. It's a false dichotomy. It's part of those spirits of the world that tells us it's either the mind or the heart. If you pay attention to what John said here, John says the spirit that is in us is greater than the spirit that's in this world. And that means that the Holy Spirit can take anyone's mind and their heart and use them both. The mind informs the heart and the heart inspires the mind. And the mind and the heart together are led by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. It is by the power and leading of the Spirit, John says, and this Spirit alone that we can and we must think and feel and test everything. We must discriminate among the things that we hear, the beliefs we are exposed to, and yes, the choices we make. Because it's by the power and leading of the Holy Spirit that John writes we can overcome bad theology and false teaching. We can, by the power and leading of the Spirit, know the truth, and the truth will set us free. My word for it is spiritual maturity. This is spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is growing in our relationship with Jesus. It means moving past the surface level scriptural sound bites and trite Christian catchphrases and immersing ourselves in the word of God and in the spirit of God to know the truth. The truth not about Jesus, the truth of the person, the truth that is Jesus. My friends, the more we submit our mind and our heart to Christ, the more profoundly we will understand, the deeper we will experience the grace, salvation, hope, and love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.